Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning. It's good to be together on this beautiful fall weekend. I love fall, if I haven't already told you that before. It is my favorite season. Some say it's because my birthday is in the fall, but Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday, and I think it's Portland's best-kept secrets. For those of you tuning in, this is actually the best time of year to visit, in my opinion, Uh, but don't take my word for it. Just come out and visit at some point. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We'll be in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37 here in just a few minutes. Uh, We're right in the middle of a series called We Are the Church, where we've looked at uh, welcoming and belonging and gathering, and last week we looked at caring, and this week we're going to be looking at serving, uh, and this idea of servant leadership, and what does that mean in the life of a church? If you were to Google servant leadership, you will not find a single recognized authority to define the term. Uh, Wikipedia uh, has an entry that says, servant leadership is a philosophy in which the main goal of the leader is to serve. This gives credit to Robert K. Greenleaf as the source defining the philosophy. Uh, Cheryl Williamson wrote a Forbes article magazine titled, Servant Leadership, How to Put Your People Before Yourself. She credits Greenleaf as well in her article, and the passage is, or the quote that she took out of that was, the servant leader is a servant first. It begins with a natural feeling that one wants to serve to serve first. Now, very few of the Google entries, if any, give credit to the proper source for servant leadership. If you have been in church and you've studied the life of Jesus and you've studied the four Gospels, Jesus clearly defined servant leadership long before Hess or Greenleaf ever did. Jesus said in uh, Matthew 20, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That sounds kind of strange. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus' example, his life, if you study his life, if you watch his life, he defines servant leadership. He says, use your position of authority, not to to be lorded over people, not to berate people, but to improve the lives of those people underneath you, that you go and actually serve them. Put differently, your success as a leader is directly related to your desire to serve those that you lead. This is the idea of servant leadership. This is the heart of of Jesus, and this should be the heart of those who follow Jesus. I came across a story of servant leadership this week. As a, a former lacrosse coach, I don't know if any of you follow lacrosse, I don't follow lacrosse, but lacrosse coach John Brubaker, he took on this college and the team stunk. Like for years, they had just played horrible. They hadn't won any of their lacrosse games, and they just were a really, really bad team. But oddly enough, he found this really talented high school player named Steven who was interested in perhaps playing for his school, but he wouldn't commit. He was aggressively being recruited by a bunch of different colleges. If you're a really good athlete, you got lots of schools looking at you. So he had lots of options. It was a long shot for him to consider this school. And he met with this young star. He attempted to sign him, but he refused. But he did go on to say, I'll give you a verbal commitment, but I'm not going to actually sign a contract yet. And so he said, okay, I'll hold your scholarship until the spring, and then we'll kind of go from there and sign the paperwork. So all fall and winter long, what happened? Coaches and recruiters from other schools came to watch this guy play in hopes that he would change his mind. Because they knew there's a verbal commitment, but he hasn't signed a contract. He'll change his mind. We'll give him a bigger scholarship, bigger offer. He'll come and sign with us. 
the end of uh, when the spring arrived, Coach Bruce sat down with Steven and said, are you ready to sign the contract? He said, yes, I'll go ahead and sign the contract. He said, why did you wait so long to commit to our school? Here's what the student said. He's 17 years old at this time. Coach, I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of colleges come to see me play each week. Most of my teammates weren't getting scholarship offers or even being recruited earlier this year, but now they are. By me not committing anywhere, all the college coaches who keep coming to see me play get a chance to discover how good some of my teammates really are. If I signed with you early, none of the coaches, the coaches would have stopped coming to the games and none of my other teammates would have gotten recruited by colleges and had offers like I have. Think about that. At 17 years old, I mean, I think this is like the pivotal time in your life when you're thinking about yourself, when it's all about you, and here he is going, no, I want to set up my teammates. I want to set up those around me so that they can also have a, a brighter future, so that they can also get scholarship offers, so they can succeed. He was already thinking about how he could lift those around him up, how he could help them achieve their goals, and he was confident he would achieve his. He was confident his abilities, but not in an arrogant, cocky way. He's like, I've got the offers. I've got more offers. But instead he focused, how can I serve the teammates around me? How can I help them get scholarships so they can also go on to fill their dreams? I think this is a good analogy for us as followers of Jesus. That we're not only to look out for our own needs as spectators in the church, but rather we are to be servants in the church. As a Christian, you shouldn't think of, of church, which church, by the way, in case you're not familiar, like we don't define that as what we're doing right now. This is a part of it, but church is much more than that. But a lot of, I think, people in the U.S., we think of church in the terms of this is a place I show up, I sing some songs, I listen to a message, and not the place where I serve, though. This is just where I get to kind of come in and enjoy Something on the weekend. To be sure, singing songs like Ben just led us in, which you did an excellent job. I love, I love the song selection this week. But the songs that you lead us in, like those are great and they're very important. I think listening to message from Scripture is very important. But as members of a church family, we're to be contributors to the church rather than consumers. We are to be contributors to the ministries of the church. We're to be cons uh, contributors to giving of our time, our talent, our treasure. Because this is how Jesus modeled it. And to me, this is what a healthy church is made up of. Of people who say, I want to give of myself so for the betterment of those around me, for the betterment of the community around me. I think many Christians know that they should be active in a church and that we should be serving in a church, but there's like this lack, lacking deep enough motivation to actually follow through. But the only motivation we need this weekend, the only motivation we ever need is to look to the cross of Jesus. If we go, where is my motivation to serve? Look at Jesus. Now look, I know that the church broadly, right? I'm on social media enough, even though I shouldn't be, that I know that the church has failed a lot of people in our generation. I get that. I want to be sensitive to that. But when we look to Jesus, Jesus has never failed us. And this side of heaven, unfortunately, the church is always going to fail in some regards. And I'm not saying there's not a time and a place that we shouldn't leave a church. There's not a time and a place that a church shouldn't shut down and maybe implode. Okay, I'm referencing a, plot, a podcast if you're not familiar with it right now. But Jesus will never fail us. And so Jesus, we look to the cross and remind them what God has done for us in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. I mean, that alone, what else do we need? I should, I should say amen and we can leave, okay? Don't leave yet. We now have a right standing before God because our sins are forgiven. Once again, like, man, we need to stand in all of that. And then we get to enjoy peace with God. Like, God can still be like this ruling with an iron fist. Like, you're forgiven, but don't mess up again. But God doesn't do that. God loves us and welcomes us into his family. God is advocating for us. I'm actually reading this book right now. I gave it out to a lot of you, Gentle and Lowly. I don't know if we started reading that, but like, it's talking about how like, we have an advocate for us, that Jesus is coming with us and rooting us on in this life that we live in our spiritual walks and our journeys. 
And such displays of God's mercy. I mean, that alone should be stimulating enough for our worship, for our obedience, for our service. We shouldn't need any more. We shouldn't say, I need someone to prove something to me. I need the church to do this for me. Like, Jesus alone should be the motivation for our hearts. And so this morning, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, at this point in the Gospel, we're kind of jumping in right in chapter 9. So Jesus has been going from place to place, from village to village. He's been ministering to people. He's been healing people. He's taken his disciples along with him. But what's going to stick out this morning to me is the disciples, and we would be, we would be right there with them, and really we are just now in 2021, is the disciples still don't get it. They still miss the mark of what Jesus has been trying to show them. They still miss the mark of what Jesus has wanted to communicate to them. And so Jesus continues to point to his coming rejection by mankind. He's pointed to ultimately this will lead to his death on the cross. And Jesus has pointed that his, his death and his resurrection, they were coming. Even though the disciples were like, no, there's got to be a different way, right? Like, you came to rule. Like, no, I'm going to go and be crucified on a cross, is what Jesus kept pointing to them. He goes, but I will raise again to new life. And so there was three different instances between Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10 when Jesus had basically pointed to this coming reality. I'm going to quickly read the first two for you, and then we're going to look a little bit deeper at the second one. First is in Mark chapter 8. It's on the screen behind me. You don't need to turn there. Verses 31 through 35. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. I mean, if I'm here, I'm like, whoa, <laughs> he just went there. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now I want us to jump and look at the third time this happens. A little bit longer, but I, I talk fast, so I'll read fast. Mark 10, 35 through 45. Elliot, go ahead and get the next slide up there, please. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when... The ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them and said to him, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever should be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we see here that Jesus has predicted his death time and time again. He's predicting his resurrection. And immediately, what do we see the disciples get into a discussion about? Like, I'm the, if I'm the disciples, I'm sitting there thinking, like, how, like, how's it that he dies? How gruesome is his death? Will we know when he's come back to life? But no, that's not what they're talking about. Instead, they're discussing who will be the greatest. Who will be in charge when Jesus is no longer walking with us on this earth? Because the disciples, like us, are guilty of thinking in terms of the world. 
They're thinking, how are we going to get ahead of this, right? Like, this is going to look really bad that our Savior, who we've been following around, dies. Even though he comes back to life, which we all kind of know where that goes, at least I think most of us do. And so what they're forgetting is in Jesus' kingdom, the values are turned upside down of that of the world. Jesus said, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And so at least three times in Mark's gospel, if we ever study through that, we see that Jesus speaks of surrendering his life. This is kind of the theme of Jesus' life. I'm going to surrender of myself. Do we not think that Jesus had the authority to, to not get crucified on the cross? Right? Jesus could have done this differently. But then we also see the disciples three times, they speak of fulfilling their life. Right? It's all about like how, do, how can I get better in my life? They're missing the mark. They still don't get it. As one writer said as I was studying this week, that Jesus counts the cost of discipleship. They count its assets. The disciples have yet to learn the rewards of discipleship come only as a consequence of following Christ on the costly way to Jerusalem. They're kind of going, what are the benefits to me? And I think, I think that speaks to our culture today. That speaks to our generation today. What are my, what are my benefits? What, what do I get out of this? And Jesus is saying, it's actually quite the opposite. It's the, it's the reverse. What do those around you get out of this by you serving, by you living out this way? So let's turn to our passage this morning, Mark chapter 9. Verses 33 through 37, and we're going to break this text down into three parts. First, we'll see that Jesus exalts humble service. Second, we'll see Jesus demonstrates humble service. And third, we'll see that Jesus motivates humble service. So first, Jesus exalts humble service, verses, nine, I mean, verses 33 through 35, chapter 9. It says, And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Now let's just pause here for a minute. Often the case, we see Jesus returning from ministering to the crowds, ministering to the masses, and then he returns to a home, which was common in these days, and it's in the home where it's a little more intimate. Think about our gospel community that we do on Wednesday nights, and he says, I'm going to get kind of a, a smaller group of you, and here's where I'm going to minister to you. Here's where I'm going to equip you, my close followers, and we see that Jesus asked them this question. He says, what were you discussing? Now, do you think that Jesus is asking because he doesn't know? Like, is Jesus just oblivious to what it is that they're discussing in that moment? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus is ignorant to what they're discussing. But as a form of discipleship, Jesus is like, let me see kind of what they say. Actually, Jesus kind of crosses his arm and goes, now what exactly were you guys discussing? What was it that I was overhearing? And the response is kind of funny. If you look at verse 34, it says, but they kept silent. Okay, they're arguing. You can hear them going back and forth. He goes, hey, what are you guys discussing? Silence. For on the way, they'd argue with one another about who was the greatest. Now, the disciples here are no different than my children <laughs> as we drive around. We went on a hike on Friday. It was a beautiful fall day. And you, know, you can kind of hear some things getting discussed at times. And they're in the back. And we got the rearview mirror. And they don't realize there's that other little mirror. We can actually see them. We say, hey, what are you guys discussing? It's like, nothing. You know, nothing at all. And so suddenly, I think the disciples found themselves embarrassed. Like, oh no. You know, have you ever been there? You're, you're discussing something with someone and you don't realize that there's someone in the room. And maybe someone's in the lobby and we're actually talking about that person, which we shouldn't do that. But maybe they're in the lobby. We don't realize it. And all of a sudden they walk in and like, you're like, oh no. Hey, how's it, how's it going, right? I think the disciples were in that moment. They were embarrassed. They probably were even a little ashamed. Like Jesus overheard this conversation that we're having with one another. So here we have the first followers of Jesus. The ones that he later instructs were going to do greater things than he did while he was here. And they're arguing over who is the greatest. It's like the picture I get is of a bunch of guilty schoolboys out in the playground. 
They're out doing something they shouldn't be doing to vandalize in the school. All of a sudden, the principal walks around the corner. And they're like, oh, oh no, no, you caught us. We, sh we should have been doing this. And they're all just silent. Well, who did it? Well, they don't want to rat each other out. And so it's kind of easy, actually, to imagine this discussion playing itself out. You know, like, who do you guys think the best disciple here is? If you've watched the series, television series, The Chosen, uh, believe me, if you're like me, you were kind of hesitant because you thought acting about Jesus in the Bible is always really cheesy. It's actually pretty good. I actually enjoy it, if I have to be honest. But it's, I think it's easier for us to picture this now watching this show a little bit, but I can see Peter going, hey guys, oh, Siri's talking to me. I can see that Peter going, hey guys, I did walk on water after all, even if it was for a second, no one else has done that, so I'm probably the greatest. I can see James and John saying, we are the sons of thunder. It's like a WWE wrestling tag team. Like, we are the greatest. I can see John, after all, being like, I am the beloved. I'm the disciple that Jesus loves. I can see Simon the Zealot. I can crush all of you. Have you seen my biceps? And then you got Matthew. He's like, guys, I had a 4.0. I know I'm a little bit nerdier than the rest of you, but I'm the one who teaches others how to use Microsoft Excel, right? And so they kind of got this argument going, who is the great, who's the most valuable to Jesus? Who's going to be in charge when Jesus leaves? So it's not hard for us to imagine this discussion. Like, who is the greatest? And we also have to keep the context in mind. I think it's always important. It's a little bit different than ours. They live in, a, in an honor and shame culture. And in the Jewish context, it was normal to talk about one's rank and one's standing. Like, who's going to be ahead of the next person? This is something else that Jesus came in and just completely turned it upside down from the cultural norms of the day. But have things really changed that much today? It's easy for us to look at the disciples and kind of pick at them a little bit. But have things changed that much? If you get any group of people in a room long enough, get them together long enough, you'll see the same thing play out, inevitably. And stop blaming your Enneagram, okay? <laughs> Younger millennials and Gen Z, please stop blaming your Enneagram for the reason this thing's happened. If you get a group of athletes together, Right? Naturally, one of them is going to be better. And usually the ones who are better, in my opinion, we do have a coach in here, so you might disagree. They just stand out and they don't have to tell you. It's the other ones who are all like, oh, I'm best at this and I'm best at this. You're like, okay, let's see. If you get a group of moms together, they start comparing mom stories. Like, oh, I parent this way and we put our kids to bed this time and I read this book and I did this. It's like, who's the better mom? Whose kids are better? College students, right? Who's better at, at, at whatever class they're in or club that they're in? Coworkers, right? You get coworkers together. It doesn't matter what your job is. But inevitably, there's going to be kind of this competition. Who's going to stand out to the boss? Church planners and pastors, these might be some of the worst. There's certain networking events. I just hate going to them because people show up, and it's like a measuring competition. Well, how many of this? How many? I saw a church planner the other day, and if you're listening in this morning, we'll have a coffee and discuss this. But as soon as I saw him, he goes, man, we had this many people on Sunday, and this. I'm like, I was asking how you're doing, right? Like, this isn't a competition. What are we, what are we doing? But I think on and on we see this example. So we're just like the disciples. We do the same thing. We have to stop the comparison game because, you know what? There's always going to be someone you can compare yourself to. And there's always going to be someone who's better at you. There's always going to be someone who's better at Ben leading worship as much as we love Ben and how talented as he is. Don't say amen to this. I know there's a lot better preachers out there than me, okay? But whatever it is that you do in your life, if you coach, if you nanny, if you're a mom, if you're art, there's always someone who's better. And we can always compare ourselves to other people. And if you're like me, that's when I get really, really down in the dumps. And I'm like, oh man, I just, you know, you kind of push yourself down in the hole a little bit. But here's the reality that we have to keep in picture. The, the mind, that we have to keep in picture in the grand scheme of things. It won't matter what others did when you stand before Jesus. It'll only matter what you did. You're gonna have to give account for your life. You're going to have to say before Jesus said, this is why I live this way. Not, well, look what they did. And look, I was better than these people over here. I know there was like these that were better. Like, that doesn't matter. When you stand face to face with Jesus, it's going to matter what you did. And how it is that, that you stewarded your life. How it is that you stewarded your gifts. And how it is that you stewarded what God had given you for your life. And Jesus comes in. 
verse 35, and it says, he sat down. Now, this might seem like an odd posture to us, but at this time, authoritative teachers would sit down. And he called the 12, so I imagine Jesus sitting down, calling the 12, saying, come over, guys, come on, let's gather. And he said to them, if any of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, just as the Messiah of God had leads by suffering, is as each disciple is to lead by first becoming servant of all. And so we see that the suffering of Jesus, it not only marks the beginning of this messianic rule of God, but it characterizes the pattern of such conduct that humility, faith, and love that are required in the kingdom. They go, this is how I want you to live your life. This is the example that I'm leaving for you so that when I do leave, it's not about who's the greatest, but it's about being characterized by these patterns of conduct. And at no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply than the way of the world than this one question of greatness. I think about the way of the world. It is all about how do I get ahead? How do I, get, how do I stand out? How do I snub others? How do I move other people out of my way so that I can be elevated as the greatest? Like, how do you climb the corporate ladder? Right? A lot of times you got to do some shady things. you got to make some business deals. you got to cut corners. And Jesus says, no, I do this completely different. And so as Christ followers, we should live our lives, wherever as we live, wherever as we work, wherever we play, we should live in such a way that we're the opposite of the world. And it's not that Jesus is against prominence. Don't, don't mishear that. Like we see examples of people who are very um, prominent and, and there's greatness in the Bible. He's not against it, but he redefines it. He redefines what that looks like. He says greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by servanthood. Right? Maybe put that on your next interview application. And I say, how is it that you got to where you are? I'm a servant. I'm a servant of all. Or maybe if you're trying to get ahead at your job, you're trying to get ahead in life, maybe you start there. You know, say, hey, I'm a servant. Maybe you go home today and you... You go and serve all your roommates. You clean up the house and you cook lunch for them. And I know you're thinking they're going to be ungrateful for that. Who knows? What it might happen? What it might change? Greatness in the kingdom of God is defined by generosity. How's it you're generous with really your time, your talent, your treasure? Like how's it you're giving your time away as a way to serve others around you? And here's some examples how that might look for us today. Could be the oldest child in a family helping with their younger siblings before doing their own thing. Say, hey, mom and dad, can I help do this? Hey, can I help get my little brother ready? Can I help do this, my little sister? It might be the single lady in a church who creates a warm environment and welcomes others in. You know, maybe the holidays are coming up, and so maybe this person says, I'm going to welcome my home and invite single people or or, or people, you know, we have international students in our city who don't have a place to go for Thanksgiving, and we welcome them into our homes. This might be the quiet and consistent generous giver to the ministries of the church. You know, I think sometimes people will give, and they'll go like, Look at this fat check that I gave to this nonprofit. Or look at this fat check that I gave to the church. But I think here it's about the quiet and consistent, generous giver that no one would ever know. You would never have a clue. Or maybe someone giving up some of their time to invest in the next generation. Saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up away some of this so that I can, I can go do this and help this next group. The reality is there's no, sure, no, no shortage of service opportunities. I think the problem is often within our own selfish hearts. We all tend to prioritize anything and everything over serving, right? And there's no shortage of things to keep our attention. I mean, there's right now, like, we've got kids in soccer, and we've got opportunities to sign up for futsal, and there's skiing, and there's, you know, all these things on and on. Like, we live in a gray area of the country and do a lot of different things, right? And so there's no, no shortage of things that are going to take our time and attention, but there's also no shortage of service opportunities. I think sometimes it's like we prioritize just what's important to us, and that's kind of what the disciples were doing. They were saying, who is the greatest? And who, who are these things? And Jesus go, no. What does it look like to give your life away on behalf of others? I think we could all use a daily reminder from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, I haven't done this, but I think that, those two verses, three verses right there, we can print that out and put that on our mirrors, right? That should be the thing that we see in the morning as we're getting ready, you know, as we think about ourselves and our day and how we look going, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Think about just your life. Think about our life. Think about our city's life. If everyone lived just by those couple verses right there, if you're counting others more significant than yourself, how different our lives would be. I think about even relationships and I'm not trying to get too personal up here, but I think about just my own marriage with Andrea. How few, if any, arguments or fights would we get in if both of us were living that way? If both of us were considering each other more significant than ourselves? I think they would be almost none at all. Now, if you go into verse 35, we see this Greek word for servant, and it's uh, diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from. We don't actually have deacons yet at Sojourn, but that is one of our goals. I think of a healthy church, long term, we will have deacons. And it's used ordinarily for waiting tables and generally considered demeaning and undignified at this time. So once again, we think about waiting tables now, it's not necessarily that, but at this time. But in Jesus' teaching, the servant or the selfless servant is a visible manifestation of the reality of God's love. So he's saying like, this is one to actually look to as an example. And so we see that this is, once again, it's flipped on its head. The greatness in God's economy is not reserved for the gifted and the privileged. Like, that's what we do. I mean, that's a standout star. That's a gifted student. That's a privileged person. They've got these things. You know, they were born to the right family. They were born of the right um, socioeconomic status. They were born of the right gender. They were born of the right color. None of that matters in God's kingdom. Rather, itself is every believer is common and simple, and we have the simple task of serving others. That we're all on the even level playing field, which is one of the things I love about the kingdom of God. I love about the church is we should find rich and poor, black and white, and yellow and brown. We should find all of these different things and all these different giftings. And it goes, they're all needed. And God has created all of us and there's a purpose in all of them. How is it you're using those to serve others? And our service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate and fulfill the mission of Jesus. Let me say that again. Our service to others is the primary way in which we, as believers, as those in Christ, imitate Jesus and fulfill the mission of Jesus. So we see that Jesus exalts humble service, which leads us to number two. Don't worry, I have three main things, but the other two won't take as long. Is that Jesus demonstrates humble service, verses 36 and 37. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, in Judaism, children were the lowest order on the social scale. And this time, they largely depended on men for their livelihood, okay? We have to always look at the context. We may disagree today, and it may look different, but this original context, because children were looked at as they have not arrived yet. They're kind of poor. They're kind of lowly. They did not look at children how we look at them today. I think most parenting today, we... We, we have the child as the ruler of our lives and the ruler of our schedules, right? And everyone, everything's kind of reoriented around the children. We see this happen a lot. We run our kids to school. We run them to ball practice. We run them to parks, to birthday parties, and so on and so forth. Like we do all these things, and we, we, you know, we kind of sacrifice our own lives. But it wasn't this, at this time in this culture. It was, it was completely opposite. The kids were just kind of there. But the attitude, the heart of Jesus that we see here is even the lowly ones, even these children, he receives them. He doesn't neglect them. He doesn't reject them. He receives them. And therefore, what he's exemplifying, what he's modeling is that he cares for the, the lowly in the world. 
And that's such a little one in Christ's name. And so Jesus is saying to disciples, care for the least of these, which at this time were the children. He said, nobody and nothing is beneath you. Don't worry about being the greatest. Worry about being the least. Now, although kids are generally treated better in our society, better in our world today, on the surface, I think the mentality towards children hasn't actually changed that much. Here's what I mean. Our city, let's kind of localize it to Portland, I think our city generally sees children as an inconvenience. There's been multiple restaurants that I haven't felt welcome. There's been restaurants I haven't got a table, and I let them know I wasn't happy about it, okay? Now, as this total side note, in this book that I'm reading, Gentle and Lowly, it talks about the emotions in our life. Like, anger is a normal emotion. Just be angry and do not sin. So I think it's okay that I was angry in that moment. Most millennials are waiting later to have children, choosing their career over their family. Not always the case, but a lot of times that's what it is. And most will have one child. Now, once again, total tangent, total side note, but I know the other, other face are outpacing us in having children, outpacing us in multiplying when our God is the one who said, go, be fruitful, and multiply. We are killing eight to 10,000 babies each year in Oregon alone through abortion. In Oregon alone, eight to 10,000 babies are aborted. My guess, and I could be wrong, most of those are probably in Portland because we're the, the big city, but eight to 10,000. So are we really treating children any better today? than they were at that time. Sure, on the surface, and those who have a kid, or in our case, a few kids, we're actually looking at weird because we have three kids, but if you have multiple kids and you're running around and doing those things, but as a whole, as a society, are we actually treating children that much better? Think about how this impacts the local church. This is one reason we partner with an organization called Every Child. Every Child works with the foster care system and, and helps people eventually long-term adopt children. And so we have a long-term goal to see some at Sojourn who would go on to foster children and who also go on to adopt Children, there are currently, it's interesting that there's eight to 10,000 babies aborted every year, and there's also eight to 10,000 children in the foster care system in Oregon alone. And so there's also, also that amount. Thank God those children weren't aborted, but there are needs for foster families. There's needs for adoption of kids. At Sojourn, we could use some help discipling children. Like, what does it look like? And I know you might be thinking, well, most of our kids are your kids. I get that. But I think it's also one of our hindrances to growth as a church, right? A young family comes in, and they realize that there's not a whole lot for their kids. They're probably going to look elsewhere. And so I think as a body, as a community, we can discuss this more Wednesday. Like, I want us to help figure out what does it look like to help disciple the children in our church. And so when we view this in its context that day, we see that this great contrast to the status seeking of disciples. Disciples are going, we want to be the greatest. Jesus says, no, you should be willing to take on the lowly position in the world. You should be able and willing to take on the often unnoticed task. It's not about going, oh, look at me. I'm the greatest disciple. And look what I did. And look at these masses who are now following me like they followed Jesus. Jesus goes, no, go and do the equivalent. Well, I guess for us, it'd be like scrubbing a toilet. And don't tell everyone that you went and scrubbed the toilet. Just go and do it. So then when others go to use the toilet, they go, man, this is a nice, pristine, clean toilet. I feel okay, right? I'm not trying to be crass and gross, but just whatever that lowly position looks like for us. Jesus says, go and take on the little status in the world. Be like children. And Jesus says, anyone who does this receives me, and so doing also receives the Father who sent me. And so we see that humbly caring for the poor, the lowly status out of obedience to Christ will be rewarded with rich fellowship with our Father who is in heaven. Now, what are some reasons that we don't serve? And I said we, I mean all of us, okay? I know sometimes when you're the one that's standing up here, you might feel like, man, he's throwing darts at me. I'm saying all of us, okay? That includes 
myself. Because I want the word of God to speak to me and the spirit of God to speak to me just as much as I want to speak to you and you at home. I think some of us don't serve because we're lazy. I think plain and simple. We just go, I don't feel like it. I'd rather do anything else. I'd rather sit in my couch and my lazy boy and do something else. I think some of us don't serve because we're too much about self. If you didn't know this before, the whole phenomenon behind the, the selfie, here, you're doing this and you're like, hey, you know, there's a mountain behind me. There's I always feel really funny when I always delete them. I delete my selfies. I take them sometimes. I delete them. I've refused to post them on a story. I just feel funny about it. But that's where the whole phenomenon came about. Like We're just about self. But we're about our, our, our world and our schedule and our things. And I think that's another reason. But not the case with Jesus. Jesus here demonstrates what humble service looks like with the care for the children. And finally, our third point is Jesus motivates humble service. Look back at verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus draws this conclusion from the child in his arms. We see Jesus just picking up a child and having this child in his arm. Not to use him as an example of humility, but as an example of the often overlooked in our society, the insignificant in the world's eyes. Jesus is going, look, this is the often overlooked. This is the, the, the ones that are insignificant. But we are to receive them. It is this small powerless that God appears to the world. That's what he's communicating there. That I, that I came to seek and save the lost. But I came to... To, to, to lift up those who are lowly in the world. I mean, think about any other religion, any other faith. And we can talk about this later, but I don't know if any of that's, that's kind of like their primary audience, like the lowly in the world. Like Jesus lifts them up. You know, it's usually like the prestigious and you've done a good life and you've lived a certain way and you've done all these things and then you're accepted, maybe. Jesus says, no, it's clear. I've already come and done it for you. Come to me. A simple act in Jesus' name, it says we receive Jesus according to this verse. That this is the pathway to blessing. Sometimes people go, man, I want a blessing in my life. I want to be blessed. Like, how do I get blessed? This is how you get blessed. Go and live as a servant of all. And then you'll have fellowship with Jesus. J.R. Edwards, he says of this passage, he says, our, our response to the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned is our response to God. For whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The humblest act of kindness sets off a chain reaction that shakes heaven itself. For whatever is done to the little and least is done to Jesus. And whatever is done to Jesus is done to God. And so as disciples, the point is not to be like children, but we are to be like our Savior who embraces the children. Our service to others should be motivated by the captivating love of Jesus. Right? So I, I don't want you to hear this message go, okay, now i got to do this out of religious duty. <laughs> now i got to do this because like, our motivation should be that our hearts so captivated. Remember those things I mentioned at the beginning? that we're so captivated by the love of Jesus that's an overflow of our heart. And so don't hear me saying, okay, now I expect you to go to this and sign up. Like, no, that's not at all this message. About the, the message is about being captivated by the love of Jesus. And it's that, that the motivation. We don't serve for recognition. We don't serve for a promotion or a position. And you might think, well, why serve, right? In the world, that's what we do. We'll serve to get recognized. Right? I can't wait to get this recognition. I can't wait to get the award at the ceremony at the end of the year. I can't wait to get the promotion at work but not in the kingdom of God. Why do we serve? Because of Jesus Christ. That's why. Do we need any other reason to serve? Jesus and Jesus alone is our motivation. And so as we get ready to conclude, I want us to remember something. As Christians, as those in Christ, we worship a crucified Savior, one who made himself nothing, one who drew near to sinners, to tax collectors, 
to drunks, to prostitutes, all kinds of social outcasts, people who offer him zero power or leverage. And as a result, we are to live as servants to the world on behalf of Jesus, that we too are to draw near to the lowly, even if it means a self-sacrifice in the process. Now, throughout church history, this has come in many ways. We've seen this come through those who've been martyred. This might look like someone just taking time to listen to what's going on in your life and to pray over you. This, means, this might look like allowing your plans to be interrupted, to stay with someone. Maybe there's an area of safety or something going through mentally or psychologically. You stay with them until you make sure they're okay and you make sure they're safe. It's doing whatever it takes, even becoming lowly in order to serve and lift up one another. And so as we move into our response time this weekend, Ben's going to come back up. He's going to lead us in a final song. Here's what I want us to do. First is we're taking communion this weekend. And so if you didn't get a little communion cup, we're, we're still using the cups that I don't like, but I call them COVID, COVID cups, COVID communion. They're little cups. I have the wafer on the top. Uh, there should be some right over here. If you need one, you can raise your hand, and we'll make sure you get one. And we're going to take communion as a, a response to Jesus and as an act of worship. As we look to the cross of Jesus, we're reminded what God has done for us in Christ. Remember the low place that Jesus took in this life by taking on our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And as a result, our sins are now forgiven. Remember that Jesus died the death that we deserve. Jesus came back to life, conquering sin, death, and the grave. That now, as a result, we have a right standing before God, and we get to enjoy peace with God. And the second thing, the way we're going to respond is just reflection questions. We're not going to answer these out loud, but I've got some here on the, the projector behind me. And so as a result of this message... And these are just questions to ask yourself. Really ask God, ask in your own heart. What am I willing to serve? Second is how am I serving? How am I using my time, my talent, and treasure for our church and our community? And then what's my next step in serving? Because it looks different for all of us. That's why I'm not saying A through Z, here's what you're supposed to do next. I don't know, but God will lead you there. And remember finally that Jesus didn't only call us to serve. Jesus didn't only model for us what it looks like to serve, but Jesus gave us the power to actually serve and to live this out. And such displays of God's mercy should alone be enough for our worship, our obedience, and our service. So let me pray for us. Then we'll come up and we'll respond accordingly. Heavenly Father, thank you for another great week that we can gather as your church. God, many of our people were, were out this week, either traveling or sick or work, and we pray that you'd be with them. And we pray for those tuning in online this morning. Thank you for their presence with us. God, I pray as we look at this message and we continue to look at what it means to be a church, what it means to, to be an active participant in the church, God, that this idea of serving, this is probably one of the most unpopular, maybe even one of the most difficult for all of us to hear. But God, that we'd be reminded that you modeled this for us. God, I ask you to touch hearts that your spirit would lead us to. What does that look like in our lives? Does it look like serving a neighbor who maybe is unable to rake their leaves this fall and winter? Does it look like serving children and, and helping discipling them? Does it look like helping meet a need in our community that needs to be met? God, may we not look at this as a, a religious duty or, or order, but God, may we look at this as a way to live out as citizens of your kingdom. And God, will we stop the comparison game in our lives? Will we, will we not model the disciples in this sense? But God, will we model after you and serving the least of these and becoming last so we can be first? 
God, we love you. We give this time over to you. It's in your name and by your power we pray. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.